Trust you've all prepared yourself for an evening of frights, screams, and scares as we explore true paranormal stories from across the country. But just a few things to remember as we do so. These stories have been submitted by listeners just like you. Listeners that shared their stories on our 24-7, 365 hotline. More on that here in a bit. Now each tale told tonight is told to be true. In addition, I do my best to weed out any calls that sound suspicious. Not that that happens all that often. And finally, if you're not keen on the subject matter of a particular tale, just be patient. We'll be spanning several different categories here this evening, so we'll be sure to land on something you're going to enjoy. So then, without further hesitation... Please welcome Chris from Tennessee to begin tonight's program. Hey, this is Chris from uh, East Tennessee. And in around 1989, I was 18 years old and I uh, was working in a television station in North Georgia. I was working third shift, running late shows and was coming home when I had to go through a state park, Red Clay State Park, where the Trail of Tears started. It was about 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, There was fog everywhere, and in the fog, I saw a Native American on a horse. And he saw me, because he actually watched my car drive by. That is not a place for people to camp. Of course, it was cool, so I don't think this guy would be dressed the way he was. And... uh, on a horse early in the morning. But then I looked in my rearview mirror as I went past to double check and he wasn't there. So uh, I hit the gas and got home quickly. But it's an interesting story just because of the location and uh, and what actually happened there. So thanks for uh, everything you do and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. I always love a good Native American on horseback ghost story. And that might sound oddly specific, but we've had one filter through from time to time. And I've always been excited to share it. Now, I don't know why I'm such a fan of that phenomena. Maybe it's because I've always held a deep respect for the Native culture. Or perhaps it's because I've seen an entity of my own. An entity that I still describe as Native American. He was dancing in a spare bedroom in my grandparents' house trailer. 
down in Jacksonville, Florida. I caught him out of the corner of my eye several times as I passed by an open doorway. Feathers in his hair, arms pumping, hopping up and down, silhouetted by the drawn curtains or blinds and the room's only window. But I've told that story plenty of times. If you want to hear it again, just check out the back catalog. Now, Chris mentions that the area known as Red Clay State Park was significant to the Cherokee people. In fact, an area of the park known as Blue Hole Springs, or back then, Council Springs, was the last eastern capital of the Cherokee Nation. Before, as Chris also mentioned, they were forcibly and illegally removed from their ancestral lands, breaking a treaty with the sovereign nation, which was signed back in 1819. Now that ensuing genocide became known as the Trail of Tears. In 1829, Andrew Jackson was elected U.S. President. He believed that Native Americans were savages and had no rights to their land and began proceedings to remove the Cherokee from the southern states to clear the way for white settlement. The next year, he signed the 1830 Indian Removal Act which set in motion one of the most brutal actions ever taken by the U.S. government. Thousands of Native Americans were pulled from their homes in Georgia and other states across the South. Many were shackled in chains and forced to walk at gunpoint more than 1,000 miles west on a series of routes that all led to Oklahoma. Up to a third of the 15,000 Cherokee who were forced to make the journey died on the way which is one reason that journey came to be known as the Trail of Tears. Now that important little history lesson comes to us on behalf of the Smithsonian Channel. So I guess the point here is something you already know, Chris. It's that seeing something like this in an area like that shouldn't be all that surprising. And given the tragedy that the Cherokee people suffered... It's no wonder if you might still be hanging around. Thank you again, Chris, for sharing your eerie entry. Now, folks, if you have a true, terrifying tale to tell, please call our hotline. It's open 365 days a year and 24 hours a day. Simply dial 888-608-NIGHT. That's 888-608-NIGHT. Or record your story on your phone and email the file to monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. Now don't forget, I'm still fishing for those terrifying trucker tales. And of course, those hometown legends. There's still time to submit both. Now there is no time to waste here this evening, because I have a ton of content to get through. So I'm going to stop yapping and let you hear Ariana's story. Out of Pennsylvania. Hi, Derek. This is Ariana from Central Pennsylvania. The story is not about me. This is about my mom. So when she was little, she was like 12 years old at the time. My grandmother and her lived in a town called Mildred. And there's a lot of spooky stuff that happens in that town and stuff. There's a lot of things that correlate with my family in that town. Just a lot of spooky stuff. Anyway, my mom says that one night she doesn't know if it was a dream she doesn't think it was a dream, but she woke up 
and there was all these like they looked like aliens around her looking at her as she was laying down on a table and she says that she felt like they were probing her and she said it felt good when she woke up she was completely naked the bed sheets were folded on her body perfectly and then her clothes were laid out perfectly on the bed hope you can use this love the podcast i've been binging it while i'm working keep up the good work bye thanks ariana This just might be the first report I've ever heard of someone enjoying an alien probe. That's typically the kind of thing that people shy away from. And this story, as short and sweet as it was, sort of gives off sleep paralysis vibes to me. Of course, that's not to say something extraterrestrial didn't take place here just that those telltale signs are there. So what do you think, listener? A figment of an overactive imagination, combined with sleepwalking tendencies? Or is this another in a long list of alien abductions? You decide. And thanks again, Ariana, for sharing the entry. Now up next, we make our way to the state of New York. Dawn. Welcome to the program. Hey, so my name is Dawn. I'm from New York, and I'm calling about seeing shadow people. And I thought I was crazy for this literally my whole life. I don't think I've ever told this to anyone, but your latest episode, uh, I'm pretty sure it's on season 14 now. I think it's like episode three. There's a woman talking about how she was visited by shadow people throughout the night so uh, I'm from New York upstate New York not like Rochester but more like an hour out of the city and I'm like five years old and this is the first house I grew up in it's pretty old it's like an old brick house from like the 70s and it always gave me like weird vibes growing up I've always like picked up on that but like it was never anything too crazy and this story that I'm telling now is like the only really big thing that's ever happened out of that house for me. So as a five-year-old does, I used to sleep with my parents at night. And this is around 2005, 2004. And I'm sleeping on the edge of my parents' bed. And for some reason, I just open my eyes and I wake up. And I look up and I see two shadow figures looking down at me. And... I can't remember if their eyes are green or red, but for some reason I feel like it's green, but some days they'd have glowing eyes and some days they wouldn't. All I know is that when they did have eyes, they were glowing. And I just remember staring back up at them, them looking at me. I don't think it was sleep paralysis because, like, I could move, but I was in just so much shock. Like, I don't think I believed what was happening to me. Like, I knew they were shadow people and I knew... These were some kind of entity, but I never knew what it was. And this happened, like, any time I'd fall asleep in my parents' room, I'd always see these shadow people. And I thought that, like, wasn't a thing to see them, like, over and over again. But listening to that last episode, it kind of really gave me some reassurance that I wasn't crazy. But nothing happened where, like, they were trying to warn me about something or, like, save someone in my house or something. I just kept seeing them over and over literally anytime I slept in my parents' room 
I just always saw them. And after I stopped sitting in their room, I still remembered what happened. It would make me, like, always double-check a corner I turned or, like, me walking up the steps because, like, I just felt there was just this energy in the house. So I would, like, kind of follow you. I don't know. It was weird. But, yeah, that's my story about seeing some shadow people. I haven't really seen them or been experienced anything like that since I was a child. But that definitely did happen when I was a kid. And I definitely know I'm not crazy anymore because of this podcast. And that feels really good. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. And, yeah, keep up the pod, as everyone says. Take care. Thank you, Don. Like the experience shared by Ariana earlier. Is this a paranormal encounter of some kind? Or another sleep paralysis episode? Or, I suppose, since Don was a child at the time, just part of an overactive imagination. Now, maybe so. But if one of those benign explanations are to blame here, why did it only happen in the parents' bedroom? And why did the house itself give off such negative vibes? Yet another nightmare-inducing bedroom visitor. So thanks again, Don, for sharing and calling. Now, folks, this next entry comes to us from my boyhood home of Ohio. Sarah, the floor is yours. Hey, Derek, this is Sarah from Lancaster, Ohio. I had a quick story for you. When I was in middle school, and I'm about 40 now, so it's been a long time, we had this dog named Cricket, and uh, she was a pretty unhappy dog. She was super cranky. She only liked my grandma. She was pretty young, so it was a little odd for uh, like a little dog to be so unhappy. She didn't seem like she felt well. So either way, we, we took her in. We always took care of her. And one day we were going on a very brief vacation to uh, Kentucky. We didn't have a lot of money, so we were going to like one of the state parks for a couple of nights. And we took my dog to my aunt's house for her to watch Cricket, the dog. For some reason, as we were getting all of her things into my aunt's house, the dog ran out of my aunt's house and into the street. Unfortunately, got hit by a car and she passed away. It was very sad. It was very upsetting, especially with me being like a child and Uh, My grandmother was there. She loved Cricket, even though uh, Cricket loved her. They had this special relationship that none of us had. So we were like, well, do we still go on this couple of nights stay? Again, we didn't have a lot of money. Everything had been paid for. So we decided to still go on to Kentucky for a couple of nights and left Cricket with my aunt to take care of and bury her. So the whole point of the story is we get to this Kentucky State Park, we check in, we go to bed that night, we're all very sad. It was still just like a melancholy trip at that point, of course. We go to bed and in the middle of the night, and I'm not sure why I woke up, but I just startled woke up and for some reason sat up out of bed and I looked down, and on the floor was Cricket, full-body apparition 
of her. And she looked so happy. She looked like a different dog, like she was jumping around. She just looked like whatever, all that crankiness, all that unhappiness she had had was gone. And just like she was coming to tell me that she was okay. It was just the clearest apparition. I've never seen an apparition again. It was the first and only time. And there was no really real way to explain it. I don't remember if I fell back asleep or if I watched her dissipate. Again, it was in middle school. Next morning, I tell my mom, and uh, she's not a believer of any of this type of stuff. And she's like, that was just your brain. And your brain is very powerful. So that is uh, what happened. And it was just a dream where you were in a half-wake state of asleep. Like, I guess that's possible. But to this day, I can still envision cricket in that moment. I've never forgotten that image. And it helped me feel better about what had happened because she seemed so happy. And I do think she was visiting me that night. So that's my story. It was very brief. We are a big fan of your podcast. My husband's listens once here, there be monsters. We've tried to seek you out at Crypticon. Uh, we're big fans. We love all that you and your wife, Sarah, do. And uh, we really hope you have a good holiday and a spooky season. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And I'm sorry to hear about the pup. I've been in that exact situation before and Well, it's traumatizing. But I suppose there is a bit of a silver lining here. Perhaps there is some sort of connection between the world of the living and the world of the dead that allows these departed pets a brief moment to say their goodbyes. Now, I'll be honest, it sounds silly when you say it out loud. But when you hear testimony like Sarah's and the following story, which was shared by the Dodo. You just might change your mind. When we were first married, we were at a street fair and a woman was holding this lost dog in her arms. We had just bought a house and we were so happy and we thought, we can help with that dog. So we took the dog home and we named him Spat. We had three kids, and they grew up with Spot. He was the greatest dog. He was so much fun. And he was just part of the fabric of our everyday life. Spot, how old are you now? And when he passed away, we buried him on the hill behind the house, and there he was. Some years later, we moved out of that house, and we were at a nearby park, and we happened to run into the people who bought our house, where Spot was buried. And they said, well, we wondered if your dog was a white terrier with a black spot on him. Two separate people on two separate occasions have seen a dog, almost like a hologram, at the end of the hall. We were just... Like, oh my goodness, that has to be, that has to be Spot, a spirit of Spot down the hall. Isn't that bizarre? I know that they truly saw Spot, because how else could they describe a dog that they'd never met? I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but if he was coming back to check on us, I just wanted Spot to know that we were okay. 
Well, I suppose it wouldn't hurt to let those stories give us just a little bit of hope. We've all lost furry loved ones, and it would be amazing to one day reconnect. Somewhere. Somehow. And we'll have more on connections with the dead a little later on in the program. But for now, a big thanks to Sarah for sharing her sad yet touching story. Now for this next entry, we're going to stay in the state of Ohio. But the story told actually takes place somewhere else. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. My name is Thomas, and I live in Youngstown, Ohio, although the story I have takes place in Montgomery, Indiana, at my uh, mother's house. So I was visiting. This was maybe about a year ago from now. Right now is October 20th of 2022. My uh, mom, stepdad were out of the house. Uh, I was at their house alone. It was sometime in the middle of the afternoon. It was bright and sunny. I was sitting on the recliner in their living room watching a movie. Had my phone in my lap. And out of the peripheral vision to my right, I see a tiny white light, like maybe the size of a marble, a little white light dart from left to my right side. At first, I didn't really react to it. I saw it out of the corner of my eye and I kind of thought, well, it was sunlight coming in through the window in the living room, reflecting off of the screen to my phone, shining against the wall. But then like, this thought was over the span of like two seconds. And then I was kind of like, well, it didn't really look like that. And so I turned my head and I looked directly at it. And there was a little white marble sized light that was stagnant in midair. And then it quickly moved like behind my head where there is like a little walkway. Like you walk in through the front door and there's a little walkway behind the recliner. So it moved back behind me. And as it moved behind me, I turned my head to the left to see it come out the other side, and I did not see it come out the other side. This is like the only experience I've ever had that I can't explain. I don't really believe in the supernatural all that much. I'm very skeptical, but this was the only thing I can't say for sure what it was. Aside from my phone screen, the other thought that I had was maybe my mom and stepdad got back home and the light reflecting off the windshield to their car would sometimes shine in through the window in the living room, but it wasn't that. And also the light shining in through the window would hit the opposite wall to my left. And this light was definitely to my right. And they live out in the middle of nowhere, uh, like out in the countryside. And there, there's rarely any vehicles that go by. And so, yeah, I, I've never been able to come up with an explanation for what that little light was. There was another caller I heard on a recent episode. I can't say for sure what episode it was, but there was a gentleman that talked about a little marble-sized light that went through his car and into the back seat and out of his car or something like that. And that was kind of what made me think of this. And I'm listening to your show right now as I drive and kind of thought, well, maybe now I'll finally call in and tell the story. So... That's my story. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like ball lightning to me. It's said to be a small ball of light that can move through walls and travel around quickly. That sounds exactly like what Thomas just reported. 
but without seeing the layout of the house or the light source itself, it would be near impossible to determine what it was Thomas saw that day. A ghostly presence, a trick of the light, or a simple ball of electricity. Whatever it was, it made for an interesting submission. Thanks again, Thomas, for sending it in. Now next up, we venture to the state of Texas, where Madge is ready with her entry. Hey, so my name is Mads. I'm from North Texas. So I've actually been a paranormal investigator for like 15 years now, which is kind of funny because I'm only 26. So yeah, I started doing this when I was 11. No joke. My dad got me into it, but really like both sides of my family have been like steeped in the paranormal for generations, honestly. On my mom's side in, you know, Puerto Rico, my great-grandmother would take my grandmother when she was a child and they would hold seances in their living rooms like entire neighborhoods of people would come and gather in like one single house and they would even bring their kids and anyway I currently live in a really historic neighborhood that was originally established in 1917 to be an army training camp for what I believe was like the 36th infantry division Honestly, I'm unsure if these details actually have anything to do with the story that I'm about to tell, but I always feel like that's important to add. This occurred in March of 2021, like right in my backyard. So in my backyard, we have concrete from the back door to the furthest edge of the house, and then beyond that is the yard. Behind the backyard is an alley, and we do have a gate into the alley. However, it is padlocked from the inside. So then back on the concrete... We have like an outdoor seating area, including like a big wooden table at the edge of the concrete where the edge meets my next door neighbor's fence at a right angle. I had a small flower pot by small. I mean like five inches tall with like a five inch diameter. Maybe in the pot, I had like a dead plant. I had just gotten too lazy to get rid of it. So kind of sat there for a while. So the night before this, kind of unexplainable event happened I had been on a blind date that a like a good friend of mine had set up after we went out to dinner we came back to my house which I felt comfortable doing because my mom was home and I knew you know that my friend wouldn't set me up with somebody that she didn't know super well and I trust her so we went in the backyard and sat at the table and smoked not gonna lie we did smoke some of the jazzy cabbage together The only reason any of that is important is because I did sit on that side of the table closest to the flower pot. So I know that night the flower pot was still sitting there intact. I should also mention we do have like a ring floodlight camera that's always on. The ring camera is important to remember. So the next day I got up kind of late around 1 p.m. in the afternoon. It was a beautiful day, I remember. So when I let my dog, Dolly, into the backyard I followed her out with a toy after I had walked to the end of the concrete to like toss the toy for Dolly I noticed to my left that the flower pot was shattered into a few kind of bigger pieces but the soil that had been in the pot including the dead plant were off to the side but they were perfectly intact as if somebody just pulled the soil 
with the plant right out. And I know a lot of planter friends on here will say, you know, if it's a dead plant that's been there long enough and the soil's really dry, it'll be really easy to just pick up the plant and the soil will come right out with it. And I do think that that's what happened. It was just sitting there like in the exact shape of the flower pot. So uh, I kind of went inside and came up to my mom and was like, hey, what happened? And she looked at me really confused and said, I thought you were the one that broke the flower pot. So naturally I pulled up the Ring app on my phone to look at the footage. I went all the way back to the night before during our date. I noted that like at no point was that guy, and I can't for the life of me remember his name, that was our only date. (laughs) He was never alone back there. And even if he had been, I don't know why he would have wanted to break my flower pot. So I watched the footage for the rest of the night and there was nothing. I mean, it never once picked up motion at all. Not until I went out with my dog between 1 or 1.30 p.m. after I'd woken up. My mom's dog, however, Nala, had to have gone out there already because She is an older dog and wouldn't have been able to wait all this time to go out. She would have been awake probably with my mom since like 6 a.m. And yet the camera was rolling that entire time, but not once did I see Nala in the backyard. So I asked my mom. She says, yeah, she took her out twice that morning at 6.30 a.m. And then again around 10 a.m. or so. I'm totally dumbfounded. I mean, I'm watching the camera. I'm looking right at it. It's filmed the entire time. Not once did it pick up motion or did it pick up my mom and her dog. So my brain is like racing at this point. And remember the pot, it was already on the ground and it couldn't have toppled over and then broke the way that it did. It was only five inches tall. The only way it could have broken this way I think is if somebody had picked it up just a few feet off the concrete and then dropped it but I don't know how or why no one was caught on camera the camera didn't pick up a raccoon a possum literally nothing a few days went by and this never left my head as like a paranormal investigator I'm used to some form of evidence whether that's the ability to debunk something Or on the other side of that, we have EVPs and video footage, whatnot. Forms of evidence, you know. But the broken pot and the missing ring footage was a total mystery. Two or three days later, I get a notification on my phone from that neighborhood app that someone had seen what they thought was like a small black monkey-like creature entering the alleyway on my street and my block specifically. I was like totally shocked. I remember looking at my app with my jaw just dropped. (laughs) In theory, a small black monkey may have been able to pick up a pot fully out of view of the camera because the pot was just behind the table and then break it. I don't know. Maybe a small black monkey could have escaped the camera's motion sensor. It sounds so ridiculous. I googled local cryptids and did a lot of research, honestly, and and nothing matched this description. I even called the nearby zoo and asked if they had a monkey missing. Nothing. Nope. Anyway, I guess that's my story, but 
I just don't know. Was it like a dimensional flip, like like a blip in time and space, like there in my backyard? Was it a monkey? Anyway, so thanks for letting me share the story. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Madge. No, I'm not going to lie. The flower pot was strange and all, but I really want to know more about this monkey creature. Now, Delaney and I dug around a bit, but we were unable to unearth the neighborhood group post that Madge was referring to. So we'll just have to take her word for it. But we did find another encounter involving a monkey that took place just a half a dozen miles or so to the northwest of Madge's location. A few weeks back, we discussed the Lake Worth monster flap of 1969. Well, coincidentally, something happened at Lake Worth ten years prior that I suppose can only be described as monkey business. The tale begins middle of June 1959, when Haskell Hack Markham's pet rhesus monkey escaped. Hack owned Markham's Tin Top Quick Shop service station on Jacksboro Highway. At the time, exotic animals such as monkeys and even big cats and elephants were sometimes used to lure customers into a business. The escaped monkey did not appear in the news until early 1959, when his escapades were described as roaming and molesting various living creatures in the area. According to newspaper reports, the monkey was attacking and stealing food from pets and livestock on the west side of Lake Worth. Residents were up in arms and even tried to capture the escaped simian. A WBAP news story introduced William Henry, who, adorned with a knife and pith helmet, sought to lure the monkey into a station wagon in the Wildwood Park area. Henry, described as an expert animal caller, capable of calling up deer, coyote, foxes, wild cats, and mountain lions, attempted to call the monkey, but his calls fell on deaf ears. On August 18th of 1959, another newspaper story reported that the elusive monkey was spotted in the backyard of a residence along Jacksboro Highway, three and a half miles northwest of Lake Worth. The Lake Worth Marauder, as the monkey came to be known, avoided capture and the media until the evening of September 5th, 1959, when J.D. Freeman, owner of Freeman's Red Barn Boarding Kennel, reported the monkey on his property. Now, Mr. Freeman attempted to trap the animal without success, but did call a star telegram reporter who captured the only known photo of the elusive primate. Unfortunately, the photographer's flash spooked the weary animal, which promptly hightailed it for the woods. Now, that information pulled from an article by the Friends of the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge. And let's be honest, that monkey would be pushing 70 years old these days. So something tells me that it's not the same creature. But I did find it rather interesting that there were two monkey reports out of the same few square miles, some 64 years apart. Another summer of the monkeys, I suppose. Thank you again, Madge, for sharing that entry. Now, before we move on, remember that the Dogman days of summer are upon us. That means that you can save 15% off your entire purchase at the Monsters Among Us shop. Excluding the brand new Color Blast collection, of course. All you have to do is buy stuff from our shop at MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com and just click the shop tab. 
all proceeds go to help keep the show rolling. So it's a great way to support the show and look good doing it. Again, that's monstersamonguspodcast.com and hit the shop tab. Now, earlier in the program, I'd mentioned that we would further explore the concept of communication from beyond the grave. Well, here to help me fulfill that promise is Deanna, out of Texas. Hi, Derek. My name is Deanna. I'm formerly from Montana. I now currently reside in Texas. I'm calling about, I think it was season two. I don't remember. I'm currently on season four. I just finished episode 15. But I'm calling about when my great-grandparents passed away. I must have been about 12. So this was almost 18 years ago. I had been invited, and this, this is on my, my paternal side, and I'm not very close to my paternal side, so it was, you know, kind of a blessing to be able to go to the memorial service for my great-grandmother. She passed away shortly after my father married his current wife, and, you know, being 12, I was actually really close to her and my great-grandfather, like I said, on my paternal side. They were Native American Indians. They were from the Montana area. They were actually born into, you know, a tribe, not the tribes you see today. They actually grew up in in tents, and they remember being captured by white men and taken to concentration camps for Indians, Native Americans. And they were, you know, removed from their parents and kept in these camps and taught the ways of the white man. I myself am considered Caucasian. I don't know what my Native American status is. I've always been white, <laughs> so I, I don't I don't really know. But it, it was kind of bizarre to me to hear this recollection from them explaining their use. I remember that they had met either prior to or just after getting into this concentration camp along with several other children. They were like six, seven, eight years old. And they had to get out. They didn't want to be there. They weren't safe. You know, they were treated poorly. They wanted to leave. And so they managed to escape during the winter. They made box shoes out of of cardboard. They put on all the clothes that they could find. And they managed to get out of the the fencing that they had put up around this, this concentration camp in Montana. I don't recall exactly what happened after they left the camp, but, you know, that being said, that's that's a little backstory on their, their history. But when I got invited to the memorial service for my great-grandmother, I didn't really know what to expect. I had never been to a Native American uh, service for the deceased. And so my great-grandmother had been cremated. And my great uncle, her son, was a shaman, a medicine man, excuse me, a medicine man. And he was the one who performed the ceremony. So he was in his full spiritual gear. I remember that we were up at a mine in the mountain. They had named it after my grandmother, which I'm not going to repeat, but they did. They had named it after my great grandmother because my great grandfather had actually found this mine. But it was a copper mine. So, I mean, it wasn't terribly sought after but we were up there and we were all kind of standing around in a circle and mind you there were there were several of us uh, probably about 20 20 plus people up there and we had all 
left our doors open on our vehicles. You know, we were up in the mountains. Everything was fine. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. The sun was shining. There were dragonflies in the air. You know, you could hear the birds chirping. It was, it was a glorious day. So this process started, and we all had tobacco. And we were, you know, slowly dusting tobacco in the wind. And it wasn't very windy. It was just, it was raw tobacco. And we were, we were letting it go with the, the light breeze that had been occurring. And then my great uncle went around and, you know, gave us all a little bit of our ashes. And we were all to chant over them a little bit and, and release them into, into the air, you know, kind of throw them up and let them go. And mind you, we're all standing kind of in a circle. There's like between 20 and 25 of us. And we're all, we're all up there. And the bizarre thing that I recall, you know, is not just an overwhelming sense of peace and love because it felt like my great-grandmother was there. You know, we did this ceremony shortly after she passed away, you know, shortly after we received her, her remains back from being cremated, you know, it was still really fresh. And like I said, being 12, I really had no sense of spirituality. I, I didn't really... I'm still not the most spiritual people, but I felt I felt something. I felt presence. And after I remember we were all done throwing the last bits of her ashes up into the air and watching them scatter away in the wind, an eagle flew overhead. And I remember just like my heart, you know, like in my chest, I, it just felt so tight, like I was being hugged. And then all of the doors on all of the vehicles that we had brought out there all slammed shut at once, including a sliding door on, on a minivan. You know, all of these doors slammed shut at once as this eagle had just passed, you know, overhead. And then we were surrounded by dragonflies. And it was the most calm experience I had ever been through in my life and it was just you know it was crazy it was it was just kind of it was bizarre and I've had a couple other experiences which I'll call back with those um at a later point after I listen to more of the podcast which I absolutely love it it's amazing I truly appreciate what you do and you have a great great group of people calling in but I like I said I don't remember exactly what season you were talking about situations like this but I definitely wanted to call in with my story and Today was that day, so I hope you have a fantastic day, and I can't wait to catch up and get on the same page with everyone else and hope to hear my story on here. All right, thanks. Bye. Thank you, Deanna. Now, I've held on to this call for quite a while now. I would see it each week as I made my selections and think, is this the week? Is this the week I work up my own courage to share Deanna's call? Now I can see why that statement could confuse you. Why would I need courage to place someone else's entry? Well, the reason is simple. It's because Deanna's call hits home for me. My maternal grandmother passed away from a rare disease nearly 30 years ago. She was a gentle and kind woman that the world did not get enough time with. Well, ever since her passing, my mom has associated dragonflies with her spirit, her soul, her memory, what have you. Anytime that she would see a dragonfly buzz by, she would always mention grandma. At birthdays or holidays, mom would always get dragonfly earrings or a dragonfly wind chime. It almost became a bit of a mascot. 
Well, six years ago, next month, my youngest brother took his own life. The crevasse left in his absence is immeasurable. The anguish that his family and friends have endured since is unfathomable. And needless to say, our family has not been the same since. But we have all gotten together one time since his passing. On a visit back to Ohio that Sarah and I made before the pandemic took hold. We met at my other brother's house, who now lives in my paternal grandparents' old home, just outside the village I grew up near. We lost both of my grandparents in the last ten years. While the weather was great, it was hot, but it was nice. Both my parents and their significant others were there. The niece, the nephews, including my youngest brother's boy, who was still very young at the time. We were all making the best of a sad situation. Heavy-hearted, but undoubtedly happy to be together after the hardest 20 or so months of our lives. We ordered pizzas, I believe, and passed the football around while the kids did tricks on the trampoline. Well, since my brother's death, my mother has also begun associating his presence with dragonflies as well, in much the same way that she does with my grandmother. Just her way of knowing that they're both still here with her. A little reminder whenever one should happen to fly by. Well, as we were in the yard, the wind began to blow. Then the skies began to buzz as we were suddenly engulfed by a cloud of rust-red dragonflies. We all sort of just looked at one another. I don't think we really acknowledged it verbally, other than to say it was very odd to see that many dragonflies at once, considering we were quite a distance from a large body of water. Now I do practice what I preach, and I did get a video of the swarm, if that's what you want to call it. Per usual, the camera does not do it justice, but it does show enough to verify my story. And I've posted it up in the show notes. Now, I certainly can't say that my brother or my grandmother showed up that day. And I can't say that Deanna's grandmother did, either. But I can say that sometimes coincidences are just too big to be coincidences. And right or wrong, maybe it's in our best interest to believe that. Thank you again, Deanna, for sharing the entry. And sorry it took me so long to play it. As one might imagine, this is not an easy nor fun topic to discuss. But that said, if you struggle with mental issues, please, talk to loved ones. See a doctor, psychiatrist, therapist. Just please let somebody know. Now, folks, before I push play on this final entry, I just wanted to let you know that the world premiere event for our film, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle, is completely sold out. We want to thank everyone that snagged a ticket. We can't wait to see you all there. But you know, if you did get a ticket and you find out you're not going to make it to the premiere, please do us a favor and cancel your ticket the same way that you reserved it. 
That way someone else can claim it, go see the film, and we won't have an empty seat come showtime. I want to have some great news for the rest of you. As of right now, the film will be showing in three theaters in coming weeks across the country. Shelby Theaters in Coshocton, Ohio, on August 24th. The Bookhouse Theater in Joplin, Missouri, beginning September 8th. And the Majestic Theater in Crested Butte, Colorado, on September 16th. Now, I don't think tickets are on sale for any of these venues just yet, but I've included links in the show notes if you want to check them out. Once the tickets are live, the show notes are the best way to find them. So get your friends together. Book an Airbnb with a fire pit. Buy some local brews. And make a road trip out of the whole ordeal. We sure would appreciate it. Now, without further delay, please welcome tonight's finalish entry. Jesus from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the show. Hey, Derek, it's Jesus here from the island of Puerto Rico. Gotta say that I love this space that you have created for people to call in or email their sightings and stories. I think it's, it's really awesome. 14, 15 years ago, I grew up in the central part of Puerto Rico in the, in the mountains. I grew up in a coffee farm. And this was a weekend. I remember I was in high school. So we were wrapping up coffee season and we were starting to prepare for the next one. And I remember waking up this Saturday morning, early morning with my dad and we were getting our stuff ready and getting the truck sorted out with all our stuff. And I see my neighbor walking into our property, walking down the road and heading towards us. And he was not okay. He did not look good. He looked pale and he came to us and asked us if we heard anything during the night because he got to his home and noticed that all of his turkeys have been killed. He had a pen of over 50, 60 turkeys, decent size, 15, 20 pounds already, mature animals that he would raise and sell in a little farmer's market in town. And he was just wondering if we've heard anything, if, the, if our dogs barked, if his dogs barked, if we have heard anything at all. We, were, we did not hear nothing at all. He was extremely distressed. I, I don't think I've ever seen him like, like that. But my dad and I started to talk with him, try to calm him down, and he was really distressed. So my dad was like, hey, how about you go over there and help him out and see what he needs to figure out, see if he needs help fixing his pen, see if you can see something, and just go out and help him out. So I headed over there with my neighbor, and when I got there, it was like... I'm seeing, I mean, you would see dead carcasses all over the pen. Something really gnarly, something I've never seen before. But something I noticed right away is that all the turkeys that were in the pen dead had no head. They were beheaded. There were no heads to the body attached. The heads were not anywhere to be around. There were five or six that were Marvin when we got there that were about to die, but the rest of them were dead and had no head attached to the body. We spent close to two hours looking closely at the pen. It had a fence that was six, seven feet tall, a locked gate, really no access for any stray dogs, any other animals. We have no big felines. We have nothing like that. We don't have coyotes down there in Puerto Rico. We don't have anything like that. 
we don't even have big game down there. So uh, when it comes to animals that could have gotten in there and do that damage, that is extremely, extremely rare. The first thing that comes to mind is the stray dog. There was no way that the stray dog can jump six, seven feet over a fence to get to those animals. And it was something extremely, extremely gnarly. We went over, started to look, started to gather carcasses, and we did not find a single track inside. It was something really odd. So after we gathered all those carcasses up, we piled them up and we buried them. We put an extra fence around it because we did not know what was the problem with that. The gate was locked. We just did not know. It was, it's something that to this day we still don't know what it was. And uh, I headed back home that evening. My dad and I always like to take walks around the farm after we have dinner. And uh, we had dinner and we headed over to the farm to do this walk. And we noticed that in a section, we found a bunch of feathers about 150, 200 feet away from that pen. And uh, we started to look underground to see if we saw anything that could lead us to what did this to my neighbor's turkeys. And uh, we ended up in a corner of the farm, which is not my favorite because a lot of stuff has happened in there. We ended up in that corner and we found more feathers that led us to a big tree. There's a species of tree in Puerto Rico called mocha. It's a big, big tree. It's solid trunk. It's used widely for wood for different purposes. And it's now a protected species because it was almost extinct because it was such a good source of wood and lumber in the 50s and 40s. And when we go over to that corner, we notice something that to this day I, I have no explanation. I've dealt with animals of all sorts. I've had plenty of experience because of my line of work with dealing with exotic animals, livestock, domestic animals, pets, you name it. And we at the trunk about five, six feet from the ground at that trunk of that tree. To this day, it, it was a nest and it was a nest, but it was a massive nest that had a bunch of fur, it was like fur and hair, and it had a bunch of bones, of different size bones within the sticks and the wood. Whatever made that nest, it was probably very, a very strong being. I don't know if you call it an animal. I really do not know what it was. It was a very strong being that made that nest. And I remember we bumped into it. I was like 14, 15. I've never been a, a small kid. I've always been a little chunky. And my dad was like, get on top of it. Like, climb it and see what it, let's see what you see. And I was, you know, just a teenager. I was like, all right. And I remember getting on top of that nest. And it was big enough that I could lay on it comfortably. So whatever made that thing was massive, massive, massive. And it had a clear path of flying in and out because... All the branches on top of it were ripped out of that tree. So whatever came in and out of that tree, that nest had a clear landing path and clear flying off path. I remember seeing bones, smaller bones that looked like could be rodent bones. I saw bones that looked like could be dog bones that were big enough to be uh, dog bones. It was something really gnarly. I really, you know, and I remember I got off of that nest and, 
walking back with my dad. My dad was like, I have no clue what that is. That is just something extremely, to this day, something that we question what could have been. Uh, next morning was a Sunday morning. My parents are uh, very religious people, and uh, I remember I woke up at like 8, 9.30, and my dad was coming back from the farm, and I was like, hey, Dad, like, what What are you doing? Like, what's up? He's like, oh, it's just nothing. It's nothing. I was just doing some stuff in the farm before going to church. I remember we went to church. So after I came back from church, I kind of snuck out of the house and went over to that corner, a little bit worried, concerned about everything that had happened. And I noticed that my dad had cut down the tree and had burned the tree in the nest. It, it was coals when I got there. Still hot, but it was cold. And I didn't think that my dad did that at first. I saw that thing burning and I was like, oh, what happened here? So I came back to the house. I'm like, dad, the tree got caught fire. The nest, like, what, what happened here? And he was not too verbal about it. He was like, yeah, I just went there and cut it down. I'm like, dad, like, why would you do that? Like, we were going to take pictures. Like, we were going to call the Department of Natural Resources, the Rangers wildlife officers and see if they know anything like well what is it like we we really i really wanted to know what it was and my dad was extremely nonverbal. he was like no don't worry about that it's just it's fine i caught it down and said, it's all right i don't know it's fine he was just not verbal at all about it he did not want to talk about it to this day he does not talk about it but the chilling thing is that that night it was a sunday night that night around 12, 1 a.m., I started to hear on the farm cries, like big cries. Like, I don't know if anybody listening has heard a Java peacock call, like that that high-pitched yell that they emit, something like that. I have no clue what it was to this day. It's still kind of like, I wonder what it is, what that thing was. I assume that whatever was in that nest was that thing that took out my neighbor's turkeys because anything that came into that pen had to come over the fence or flew into the pen from the outside. There's nothing jumping in. There was no damage to the fence. So I connect those two things because it's just so coincidental. And I have never seen, I've researched nests of big birds throughout the world. I've tried to look information on birds and, and see, see, I've talked to ornithologist about what could have been. I just don't know what can build a nest as big as, as that thing. Because I've seen we have a species in Puerto Rico, a, a red-tailed hawk, that makes pretty big nests, but definitely not a nest that 14, 15-year-old like me could have laid on like I did with that one. So just to throw this out there, maybe somebody has heard something like that or has seen something like that in the Caribbean or, or any other part of the world. I would love to hear it. Yeah, that's my story. Thank you, Derek. And uh, talk to you all soon. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, that's quite the story. Now, I grew up with chickens, and from time to time, a critter would get into the coop and pick one of them off. It was fox, mostly for us, I think. But I have serious doubts that's the culprit for this particular case. Several birds decapitated, head found to be missing. A giant nest, 
and all the evidence gone before anyone can even have a look at it. Well, as wild as this account sounds, there are known animals on the island capable of this sort of destruction. My first thought was that it was a pack of street dogs who are often involved in these sort of run-ins. But the injuries the birds sustained were not consistent with a dog attack. They typically rip and shake, causing all sorts of damage. Now, owls are known to kill multiple animals in an attack, and are also known to eat the victim's head first. It sounds like we're on to something here, right? Well, the problem is that there are only a few species of owls on the island. The barn owl, the short-eared owl, and the Puerto Rican owl. And none of them weigh more than two pounds. So in my opinion, the size differential is just too great here. A 10 to 15 pound turkey versus a, what, 20 ounce owl? I don't think so. Unless one of these owls went berserk and ate its weight in turkey heads. I think we can dismiss this subject as well. Then, of course, there are monkeys. Now, although primates are not indigenous to North America, Puerto Rico included, there is a breeding population of rhesus macaque monkeys inhabiting the island. They were brought there in the 1930s for scientific study, but escaped and thrived in the jungles ever since. And monkeys can be vengeful little shits. Don't believe me? Ask this farmer and his 50-some dead chickens. 50 chickens on a poultry farm in Elon County were killed by a group of vengeful monkeys, according to a farmer. The monkeys were known to frequently enter the farm and steal poultry feed. The farmer used fireworks to scare them away. Stray dogs also broke in and killed chickens. In response, the farmer decided to set up a two-foot-high fences around the farm. A couple days ago, while he and his son patrolling the farm, they found 20 dead chickens piled up. Then they found another pile of 30 dead chickens the next day. The monkeys were sitting on the trees and watching. The dead chickens had their necks broken, with wounds caused by animal bites. The farmer said the monkeys were upset with the fences so they killed chickens and piled them up to provoke him. However, animal specialists said the chickens could have been scared to death by the presence of the monkeys. The farmer will set up electric fences to keep the primates out. He has claimed a war on the monkeys. Oh yeah, scared them to death. Scared them so bad they all broke their own necks. That's certainly something that happens. That clip courtesy of Tomo News U.S. over on YouTube. And despite the similar style in which the birds were dispatched, I don't think a monkey was our culprit either. Now, of course, we should never rule out the other primates on the island. Human beings. It's very possible that a person did this. I don't know why. But stranger, more vile things have happened at the hands of mankind. But I somehow doubt that's the explanation either. Surely someone would have heard a person invading a turkey coop. And you can't tell me that no one would hear a troop of monkeys tearing off turkey faces. So to solve this little mystery, I shot off a couple of questions to a marine biologist friend of mine. She's also featured on the paranormal television program, The Truth Is Out There, Dr. Shea Conger. And she hooked me up with an interesting website. It essentially breaks down animal attacks and helps categorize an attack based on certain characteristics. I've linked to it in the show notes, 
but use a desktop to open it. It's not really formatted for a mobile device, but the information there is vital to anyone losing livestock or trying to solve a cryptid mystery. Now using a simple table, you can pick characteristics of the attack and follow the guide to give you a likely culprit. For example, several animals were killed and their heads were removed in this case. So using those parameters, the table reduces the list to only three likely predators. Raccoon, mink, and weasel. Well, as it turns out, none of those creatures live on the island of Puerto Rico. But an animal of a similar size and shape does. The Indian mongoose. And these ferocious little predators are known for their fierceness and ability to take down prey much larger than they are. Now I hear what you're saying. The men in the story had never seen anything like this before. Wouldn't they recognize a mongoose attack? Well, not necessarily. Because the Indian mongoose, as its name might suggest, is not indigenous to the island. It was brought there in the 1870s to help defeat the plague of rats that overtook the local sugarcane fields. And they've been here in some numbers ever since. But maybe not numerous enough for Jesus and his kin to have ever come across them before. And you certainly can't blame them for not having an Asian mongoose on their list of suspects. But listen to this description from Cluckin.net, a website about raising chickens. And although mongoose and weasel are not related, they are both of similar size, shape, and fill the same niches. So in my humble opinion, this evaluation applies. The weasel family tends to kill everything it can. They kill multiple birds and may dispose of the entire flock if they have the time. They will kill with a powerful bite to the back of the neck and tend to eat the heads or rip open the vent of the chicken. Killed birds are piled up in corners or tucked away. Food is stashed for them to return later. The weasel family is strong for its size, as well as being fierce and tenacious. The weasel family is long and thin and designed for squeezing into narrow tunnels, so getting through rat's holes into your coop is nothing for them. I don't know, it sounds like a match to me. But I can still hear you. What about the nest? Well, perhaps the feathers were left by the mongoose. Perhaps it did live in that area. But I suspect the nest belonged to a bird of prey. Perhaps that red-tailed hawk that Jesus had mentioned. They build nests up to three feet wide. Or perhaps the bald eagle, which can be found in abundance on the island. And their nests can reach a whopping seven feet across. Plenty big enough for Jesus to stretch out in. At any age. In fact, just last week I saw a photograph posted on the internet of a black bear sound asleep in a treetop eagle's nest. Of course, a link to that photo is in the show notes. So those are my guesses. And that's exactly what they are. Because I don't know for sure what killed those turkeys. It could have been a natural predator. Maybe a drifter sending a message. Or maybe a legendary monster said to call the Island of Enchantment home. And just 12 short years before the incident involving Jesus occurred, Puerto Rico was a buzz with something called chupacabra fever. Mm-hmm.
This is the Yunque rainforest on the island of Puerto Rico. A tropical paradise, perhaps best described as heaven on earth. But something is reportedly lurking on the fringes of the forest, a mysterious beast which has turned heaven into hell. When it moved, I could see it had something here on its head. It was like a crest, but it moved and made a noise. When I saw him stick out his pointed tongue, and when he held his claws and crouched for an attack, I thought I was the next victim. I felt like he was watching me because of certain movements made by his eyes. I could see three fingers on each hand, and on each finger, very long claws. The local press immediately seized upon the story. The creature was dubbed Chupacabras, the goat sucker. Over the next three months, dozens of attacks were reported. The targets were all small animals. Strangely, their carcasses were largely intact. Attacks have been reported all over Puerto Rico, with the greatest concentration in the village of Canovanas, 30 miles east of the capital city, San Juan. Now, if it wasn't obvious, that clip comes courtesy of Unsolved Mysteries. Now, the creature was described as kangaroo-like, green, scaly skin, a crest on its head, clawed hands, exposed fangs, a long, proboscis-like appendage protruding from the mouth, and piercing, glowing red eyes. In less than a year, the creature, it was claimed, killed dozens of sheep and goats and hundreds of smaller species like chickens and rabbits. Now, I doubt a mongoose is going to bring down a sheep or a goat. That seems a little far-fetched to me. So it was obvious that something was out there, stalking the rainforest of Puerto Rico. And what's odd is that the story of Puerto Rico's chupacabra and that of the mysterious turkey killer from Jesus' story both share similar attributes. Several animals were killed without raising suspicion. No one saw or heard a thing. The animals were killed by wounds to the head and neck area, and the number of killings in such a short span of time. I'm not even sure a mongoose is that voracious. But thinking a chupacabra could be responsible here, that's a little far-fetched as well, isn't it? It's not like the creature is associated with giant nests or anything. Right? Well, wait until you hear what two filmmakers found back in 1995, courtesy of the series Monster Quest. A chupacabra had just been spotted nearby. Davenport and Palermo rushed to the scene. The description that we've been getting of chupacabras, they tend to have claws. The location was in the hills above Canovanas, Puerto Rico. The neighborhood that we went to investigate in, in Canovanas, Puerto Rico, we discovered that the chupacabra had been coming to this particular neighborhood almost every night for four months. Incredible. Every night, every day. Every night. Last night too. Last night. Last night. In Canovanas, Palermo and Davenport met villagers who thought they had found a chupacabra nest. Maybe she take us now to show us the nest and we will protect her. It's barbed wire, so I'm going to try to see if I can find some hair samples on the barbed wire. 
picked up right here. I found the hairs both in that in that nest looking place and in that trail that kind of led up to it. What we've done here is uh, we've taken some hair samples from the edge of the wall. We have uh, testimony that the chupacabras jumped this wall into this area and killed a rabbit. Mark Davenport found hair samples from the alleged chupacabra nest. They do seem to be curly. Could they be hair from a chupacabra? Now, sadly, it wasn't hair from a chupacabra. The DNA results indicated domestic dog. But let's not let that discourage anyone. I've linked to both of these programs in the show notes, and you can watch them each in their entirety. Make your own determination. Now, it is worth noting that the chupacabra activity sort of died down toward the end of the 90s. Focus shift to the more canine-like Texas chupacabra, and island life went back to its usual slow, relaxing pace. Unless, of course, that is what took those turkeys that evening some 15 years ago, suggesting that if the chupacabra were indeed real, it could still be out there. Big thanks, Jesus, for sharing the entry. That's another story I didn't think I'd ever get to share on the show. A possible chupacabra attack. Amazing stuff. Well, folks, as great as it is, it's going to do it for this episode. But I want to thank you for joining us here this evening. Now, Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Copyright Red Crow Media. Additional support was provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Delaney Powers. All media used in this production has been done so under the protection of fair use. And be sure to follow us on social media if you'd like to keep the party going. And while you're at it, please give us a like and follow over at YouTube. A rate and review wouldn't hurt as well. Catch us on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 Eastern on Sundown 96.6 or Saturdays at 11 p.m. Eastern on the UnX Network. And finally, tonight's score was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, Co.AG Music, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Now, I hope you all had as much fun tonight as I did. And I will catch you all on the other side. Have a good night. Tonight's secret entry is super brief, but it's also super exciting. Please welcome Jeff to the program. Hi, my name is Jeff. In 2021, I went on a fishing trip to Costa Rica. And on the last day, when we were in a cataram boat that splashes on the surface, uh, we had a 50-foot jumbo squid come right up next to the boat and I lucked out and I got a photo of it on my phone. I just now 
sent a copy of that photo to your video website. So uh, we really enjoy it. I don't think anybody's got a photo of a live over 50-foot jumbo squid that I can find online. So hopefully people will be interested and take a look at it. Enjoy. Bye. And unlike most callers, Jeff actually did send in the photo that he said he would. So thank you, Jeff. And it is amazing, I will say. Now, I've posted that photo up in our show notes, but I've also put together a short little video you can find over in our social media pages describing just how this encounter took place. Be sure to go check that out. And I showed this photo to the same marine biologist friend and she was even more excited than I was. Apparently, that's not something you see every day off the coast of Costa Rica. So thank you again, Jeff, for sending it in. I was very excited to do a deep dive on that story. No pun intended. Well, folks, if you will, follow me into the beyond, where for a measly $5, you can join us for 20 to 30 bonus minutes of petrifying paranormal phone calls per week. Simply visit patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. Then join up with one of our tiers, and boom, you have instant access. And don't forget, you can now test drive each bonus episode for seven full days using Patreon's 7-day free trial. So what are you waiting for? Go and listen today. Where you can hear terrifying tales, like this one, from Ashland. Hi, Derek. My name's Ashlyn. This was a few weeks ago. I went home to visit my parents in Utah, and my mom was telling me something that had happened a few weeks before this. Her and my dad had kind of had a really rough relationship, just where they weren't communicating very well.